Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Begin transmission in three, two, one. This is Naked Astronomy. Each month, I strip down interesting developments in the world of space. In a quest to find out what's really going on out there. This month, we turn to one of the fundamental questions that's plagued philosophers for decades. Is there anybody out there? Join me as I ponder the possibilities with a superstar cast of guests, including Neil deGrasse Tyson, Jim Alkalili, and Dallas Campbell. Now, imagine. You're out walking the dog. It's late afternoon and getting dark. In the sky, you see a bright light. Is it moving? You think so. You try and think what it might be, starting with the most likely. Aircraft landing light, Venus, foil balloon reflecting the light, iridium satellite flare. Could it simply be floaters in your eye? You're close to the nearby military base. Perhaps it's an exotic aircraft or one of those drones we hear so much about these days. Suddenly, it dawns on you. Of course, it must be an alien scout craft from the Zeta Reticuli star system, piloted by three telepathic greys with the tacit approval of a clandestine Majestic 12 US government group. It can only be a matter of moments before you're abducted. After which you'll experience a feeling of paralysis, suffocation, missing time and pain around the genitals. You will retain no memory of the event except during regression hypnosis, after which you'll discover a small metal implant on the nape of your neck. It's bound to be one of them. Your dog barks excitedly at you in agreement. Dallas Campbell. Science broadcaster, television presenter, reluctant writer. Perhaps not so much of a reluctant writer when it comes to conspiracy theories, though. The segment Dallas read is from a chapter in a new book called Aliens, in which he charters where all these conspiracy theories began. As long as human beings have been roaming the Earth, there's been conspiracy theories. The point is, I think we all are conspiracy theorists, just to various different degrees. We all have probably irrational beliefs that we justify in, in the secret ways that we justify beliefs. Um, but the modern story of flying saucers began in the 1940s. What happened in the 40s? What was this initial sort of spike in interest? the beginning of the modern UFO phenomena. So Kenneth Arnold was a, a civilian pilot who was out flying in, above the mountains in the northwest America. Thought he saw something, reported seeing some bright flashing light, which he described as being like a, a saucer if you skipped it across the water. And the press picked up on this. Uh, and of course, this is during the Cold War, general paranoia about the Soviets. And suddenly this term flying saucer uh, was, was cottoned onto. And from then on, 
it went crazy. We People started seeing flying saucers everywhere. And of course, from 1947, of course, we have Roswell, which was the modern culture today is still poster child of, of flying saucer conspiracy theories, that and Area 51. I know Independence Day, that film, was based at Area 51 or based around the area. And I remember seeing this aged, I think I was about 12 or 13 at a sleepover. And I was so frightened by the scene where I think an alien gets pressed up against the glass or they press up a dead person against That's the glass. Right. And I vomited straight into my lap and no, was sent home. Seriously? <laughs> that's why. Wow. That's that's. I I I remember I watched The Exorcist, aged about twelve or thirteen, and I remember having a similar reaction at the moment where she vomited in The Exorcist, and I had a similar reaction, but not in Independence Day. It's quite tame Independence Day. I think it's, it's quite only ludicrous. A twelve as well. I think so. Maybe you had a stomach bug as well. Maybe it was a combination of Blame aliens. On too many sweets, maybe at the sleepover. Or, or maybe you've been abducted and the memory has been repressed. And somehow that triggered a feeling. Maybe. Could it have been that? I mean, possibly. I did, did you have this lump at the back of my neck? Come to think did of it, you, could it be a metal chip? It could be a metal implant. It would explain my irrational fear of a film, which, even after 15 years, I still haven't watched. Returning to the mysterious place that's Area 51, though, what do we know about it? Wikipedia says it's a United States Air Force base in Nevada. After a Freedom of Information request, documents revealed that in the 50s and 60s, surveillance aircrafts were developed there. But otherwise, we know very little, and it's this intense secrecy surrounding its purpose. I mean, the CIA only admitted the base even existed three years ago. That has made it absolutely legendary in the world of UFO sightings. I've been to Area 51 a few times, and there's a wonderful sign as you approach, um, it's called Groom Lake Road, you go off the main 375 highway and you drive down about 13 miles, this dead straight dust track, and you get to a turn in the road and there's some, uh, some hills, and beyond those hills is the actual base, and you can't actually see the base, but you come to a, a sign, and of course the the exciting bit about the sign, it just says use of deadly force authorised. And if you go past that line of their own, they are quite within their rights to, to shoot you if they want to. And, and nobody will have to, to answer any questions or justify it. And then, of course, you want to go past the line. And the exciting thing is just on the hills at that at that junction in the road, you can see these white Jeep Cherokees and they're just sitting there watching you with binoculars waiting for you to go past. The reality is, though, if you do go past, what tends to happen is um, they come out and stop you and they give you a hefty fine and send you on your way. I don't think anyone has actually been shot, but it's the uh, it's all the technology that goes with it. It's the motion sensors, it's the drones, it's the Jeep Cherokees, it's the exotic signage. It all adds to this wonderful um, conspiracy theory story that behind that line lurks the aliens did you dare cross the line yeah when you went? no well i just i've always been really interested in, in ufos just from a sort of cultural point of view I, I like the sort of ufo folklore and the subcultures that surround these stories of course you know people see things in the sky all the time are they aliens from outer space no i think with a, a high degree of certainty we can say that they're not that Having said that, some do believe it's true. In fact, Hillary Clinton had pledged to open up government UFO files. What does Dallas think we would have seen, though, had she won? I think that the reality 
we like to think because we have well there's a lot of files that have been released there's all kinds of big chunks of files have been released and of course there's nothing in them there's nothing of any interest in them the exciting thing about unopened files is the fact that they're unopened as soon as you open the box and realize that they're actually really really boring and there's actually no evidence of aliens whatsoever and the fact that area 51 is just a secret military base where they test exotic aircrafts everyone will be very very disappointed that that's the, that's the reality would you want to know that being said i mean kind of it's the mystery that we enjoy in itself and all the stories that go around and i'm thinking the knock-on effects and culture there's all that enjoyment that surrounds it you're absolutely right it's the not knowing it's the fact that you will never know because it's untestable it's unprovable it's unfalsifiable you can never prove the the et hypothesis um, and that's exactly right it's exactly what makes it so tantalizing the fact that you can never disprove that aliens landed at rendlesham forest or roswell or area 51 it's untestable and of course that's what people like they love that sense of mystery that excitement that there is agency beyond what we know it's that sense that we have of um, something else being out there is all wrapped up in those stories so it's and it's great for popular culture Perhaps then it's best left a mystery when it comes to those alien visitations. But what about the possibility of life beyond Earth? Surely we're not looking for little green men. We have to be much more imaginative than assuming that if aliens exist, then they are all sentient, intelligent and look like us. That's Jim Al-Khalili, professor of physics and editor of the book Aliens. What we're really looking for is any evidence that life exists or did exist somewhere else other than Earth. And what do you mean when you say we're looking for evidence? What is the evidence that might be out there? Well, one way is to point our radio telescopes to listen out for signals from space. After all, we've been broadcasting our presence into the universe just ever since we invented radio and television 100 years ago. So um, whether it's an accidental or a deliberate signal from any alien civilization, we're listening out for those signals. So this is what SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, is all about. But that's looking for life that has advanced enough to become technologically able to send out signals. But what if you're not technologically able to send out signals? What if you're something akin to a dolphin or even a microbe? There's also another strand, which is looking for the signatures of life elsewhere in planets in other star systems, extrasolar planets, they're called. And we hear in the news now, in the scientific news, almost weekly of the discovery of another so-called Earth-like planet. In fact, do you remember Carol Haswell? I'm an astrophysicist at the Open University, where I do research on exoplanets. She was on Naked Astronomy back in April, talking about her love of exoplanets, planets around other stars, or what Jim calls extrasolar planets, kind of a tomato-tomato thing. I just thought, this is just too exciting, and exoplanets are, are the way to go. Anyway, a couple of months ago, she published a big paper in Nature saying she'd found a habitable planet around our nearest star, Proxima Centauri. Scientists independent to the study described it as thrilling because it's close enough for us to send our first interstellar spacecraft. Very exciting indeed. However, that doesn't mean we've found life. It means we've found another planet which we think could be like Earth, it might be at the right distance from its star so that water can exist in liquid form, it might have an atmosphere, and therefore it could potentially harbour life. 
But what's really exciting now is that we have the ability to, just by studying the light coming from a star that could pass through the atmosphere of a planet going around that star, that light could carry with it the signature of molecules that could only have been created if life was there. So, you know, certain types of organic molecules or the presence of oxygen or isotopes of carbon. There are certain chemicals that don't occur naturally, that can only be created by living organisms. It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? And I suppose the other thing that we should really talk about is Mars, because there's been so much focus on trying to find out if there is any microbial life or was on Mars, and I'm thinking especially of the very sad ExoMars crash. Yes, yeah. But I suppose we're using quite different techniques there as we are to looking at extrasolar planets. That's right. With Mars, we can actually send probes there, and if they land safely, um, you know, like Mars rover is still, you know, busy, um, then they can look at soil samples and really, really study the composition there. We don't believe there's life on Mars now of, of any form, but there is a strong possibility that Mars did harbour life. Billions of years ago, Mars was much more like Earth. It had an atmosphere. The climate, as it were, was a bit more conducive to life. It was warmer. So life could have existed there, and the jury is still out uh, on whether life exists. I, mean, I do remember back in the 90s, there was a huge surge of excitement when it was thought that we'd found evidence of fossilised microbes in a, a meteorite that was discovered on Earth that we believe came from Mars. And studying it under an electron microscope, it was thought that we could, they could see these fossilised uh, remains of a little organism. And, and, and that made headline news around the world. But then, of course, they realised that, no, actually, that was some inorganic crystalline structure that could have emerged without any evidence of life. So that was a huge disappointment. We really are trying our darndest to find life somewhere, anywhere. Where is everybody? What, why are we not being successful in this, given how much power and science we're throwing at it? Yes, you, you've just quoted the famous Fermi paradox. Enrico Fermi, the, the nuclear physicist, the Italian nuclear physicist, was in Los Alamos in 1950, and he asked that question. That was just after uh, there was this lots of stories and news coming out that people were seeing flying saucers landing. Uh, and so it, it, it was, it was, there was a real buzz of excitement about whether aliens were visiting Earth. So, well, OK. If the universe is so big and it's been around for so long and there's so many stars out there, where is everybody? Is the fact that we've received nothing but complete silence for the last half century or more really um, evidence that we are alone and we should just give up the hope? But actually, despite searching for so many decades, we are only sampling a tiny, tiny fraction of what is out there. After all, we're only looking towards star systems that are close enough to, to us, you know, 100 or so or, or, or light years away or nearer. That's only our little neighbourhood within the Milky Way galaxy. Just because we may never find evidence of life elsewhere doesn't mean there isn't life elsewhere. I mean, just from the laws of probability, the universe is big enough that it must be, it must be teeming with life. It's just whether there's anything close enough to us but has evolved and become sentient and developed civilizations and developed technology, enabling it to send signals out to us. So there are lots of steps along the way that would explain why we've heard nothing yet. So half the problem is that the universe is a big place. 
But how big is big? Astronomical. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's our word, right? People have used that word to describe how big national debts have been or how large things are. But let me use it in the way it was intended, in the way nature had always planned to use it. The universe is astronomically large. There's no other way to say it. Meet Neil deGrasse Tyson. An astrophysicist and co-author of Welcome to the Universe. And as my day job, I serve as director of New York City's Hayden Planetarium. I suppose it's kind of hard to wrap your head around. So how big is astronomical? You raise an interesting philosophical point, because normally when we describe our life experiences, we compare them to other things that are of commensurate intensity or size or or weight. You know, you'd say, well, how big was that hailstone? Oh, it was as big as a golf ball. So you would compare it to things that already exist in your life experience. But since the size of the universe falls outside of our life experience, there's no easy corresponding thing to say the universe is so big, it's as big as, see, that's the end of the sentence. There's no, there's nothing you can add, bring to the, to the cause. So the way we try to do this is you try to build up from things that are familiar. I'll give an example. So if you ask people, if you take a schoolroom globe, you know, it's a foot across maybe, and ask people, If this is the size of the Earth, where would you put the moon? Like, how far away is the moon? People typically put it at most a meter away, okay? But in fact, on that scale, the moon is 10 meters away. 10 meters away from a globe that size. And how far away is Mars on that scale? Well, it is many kilometers away. And you start building and building and building. How big is the sun? compared to Earth. Well, if you hollowed out the sun, you could pour more than a million Earths into the sun and still have room left over. So, oh my gosh, so the sun is huge. And so this is the kind of exercise you go through, and that gives us some hope of grasping the the sheer scale and size of things. But that's only our solar system. We're talking about the whole universe here. How many galaxies are there? How many stars within those galaxies, planets? So the observable universe contains approximately 100 billion galaxies. And a galaxy contains upwards of 100 billion stars. And planets, we have come to recognize, are quite common. And when you put in some good estimates, you get about 1.8 billion planets in the galaxy. Not a small number then. Yeah, no, 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 yeah, not a small number. <laughs> you say 1.8 billion planets. What number of those could be what we consider habitable? Yeah, so just because you have planets doesn't mean there's life on them. And, and by the way, th- this, this conversation could go both ways. You could say, well, you're not going to have life on all of those planets. Well, actually, some planets have moons, and the moons themselves could have life, as an example. There are estimates ranging anywhere from one which is just us, to, I would say, several hundred, some cases a few thousand. But if you're going to be sort of of middle-of-the-road conservative, you'd say several hundred civilizations in the galaxy. Where do you sit on that spectrum yourself? Are you a more conservative estimate, or are you thinking there might be much more life out there? Yeah, I'm, I don't know that I'm actually on the spectrum. I'm a little <laughs> bit off the spectrum. I'm, I, I, have a, I have a slightly unorthodox view. And it's who is deciding that 
we humans are intelligent because we're looking for other life forms like us. But who decided that we are intelligent? Well, we did. <laughs> so so <laughs> we, we say, we're intelligent. Any other life forms out there on Earth that are... No, no, just us. Just us. And so I keep wondering, could there be life forms out there that are vastly more intelligent than we are on a level where they would not rate us as intelligent, consider us not even interesting enough to put on their list of a civilization worthy of their attention. I think about this all the time. I mean, most people are wondering about what they're going to have for lunch, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so if we loosen our definition of intelligence to include... All big-brained mammals, right? So mammals are a branch of life that only really took foothold by luck because the dinosaurs went extinct by an asteroid. So they had bad luck, but that pried open ecosystems enabling early mammals to take footholds in places where they previously just would have been hors d'oeuvres for the terrible lizards that we call dinosaurs. So the asteroids are bad for dinosaurs, good for mammals. So we rise up and now we basically are some of the most intelligent creatures on earth from rats and mice and chimps and humans and dolphins and whales and, 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 and the domesticated animals, dogs and cats. So if that branch never took hold, then mammals would have never risen to what we now see. And that was only 65 million years ago out of a three and a half billion year history of life on earth. So the contingency of the existence of our intelligence is something that is not clear would just duplicate in another planetary system. Because it's not obvious that what you need to develop intelligence is as important for survival as other things, like can you run fast? Do you have big teeth? Can you hide? Do you have camouflage? There are plenty of ways that you can dominate your your ecosystem and thrive that have nothing to do with what we think of as intelligence. So I don't see why most planets that have life would just have plenty of life just happily coming along, uh, susceptible to the forces of natural selection and evolution, of course, but without intelligence ever arising up. I think there'd be plenty of such places are doing just fine in the galaxy and across the universe. Now, if you do happen to develop intelligence and you did it earlier ago than mammal intelligence developed on Earth, then maybe you've had a billion years to develop intelligence instead of our measly 65 million years from the branch of life called mammals. So imagine a life form that's been developing intelligence far longer than ours. We could end up looking like no greater than worms slithering in the street in the presence of their intellect. If you ever got the chance to meet an alien, an extraterrestrial, what would you say? Here's what I would do. I would show the alien, I assume they could see, and I would show the alien our periodic table of elements. I would find out how they count. They have got to be able to count. Once we learn how to count, once we learn about the elements, then we do some rudimentary mathematics. Do they have a representation for the value of pi? Pi is very important mathematically and not only, and practically, it's practically important. 
how do they represent pi? Then I compare my representations with them, our, our representations. And so you build a vocabulary from things we have in common. I'm not teaching them English. That's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> and then I would ask, how have you solved these various problems? I would ask for help because for sure human civilization in 2016 needs help. So <laughs> now I would hope that they are benign and kind because if we were they, we would come upon a civilization less advanced than we are and we would just round them up into reservations or uh, kill them or, or, or enslave them or, like I said, put them in a zoo as... as research curiosities so i would hope they don't treat us the way i know we would treat them more poignant points in neil's book it's out now it's called welcome to the universe This is Naked Astronomy with me, Greer Jackson, and today, is anybody out there? I want to just take a step back for a minute to absorb what Neil and Jim have said. So intelligent life may not be all that common, and there doesn't seem to be much of an evolutionary advantage to being intelligent anyway. Locomotion or razor-sharp vision seems to be, logically, much higher priority. Maybe there are just loads of planets around other stars doing fine without intelligence. On this line of thought, then, life itself may be abundant, but not broadcasting its presence to the rest of the universe. Or maybe we're just worms on the street to other extraterrestrials who've been evolving intelligence over billions of years, renegading humanity from its pedestal. Both pretty sobering thoughts, but what would it mean to discover that we weren't alone? Because given the astronomical size of the universe, we're unlikely to ever meet it. So does it really matter? Jim Al-Khalili again. I used to think that it would, would it render world religions obsolete. That in, certainly those religions, that their, their philosophy, ideology is about us humans being special and being created by a divine being that created us in his image. And, you know, all the stuff, you know, for example, in the Abrahamic religions... Is that all sort of thrown up in the air if we discover that we're not special? But I think talking to other people, I'm now inclined to agree with them that religions are probably more versatile than I thought. They would roll with this punch in the same way that um, the more enlightened religions are quite happy to have acknowledged that the Earth isn't the centre of the universe. Uh, post-Copernicus and Galileo. So I think discovering life elsewhere won't do away with religions, but it will certainly, I think, change our perception of, of our place in the universe in a, very, a far more profound way than I think people think now. And, and I just use it as an example, the, the, that, the, the false alarm back in the late 90s of discovery of the, the fossilised microbe on Mars... Bill Clinton went out on the White House lawn and said this, this will be the most significant discovery in the history of mankind. Well, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't disagree with him there. I think it would be profoundly important. Mm. 
perhaps just let's not hold our breath. <laughs> but let's not, but let's go on with doing other things at the same time as yeah. well. Let's just let's not let's not just twiddle our thumbs. There's plenty else we can be doing as well. Jim's put together a great book on this and more. Well, essentially, it's on the possibility of extraterrestrial life. Is there other life out there? But aliens is a much catchier title. I've called upon friends and others that I didn't know, but I admired from afar because of their work. And we've covered every aspect of alien life, the possibility thereof that uh, science can offer. It's out now and it's called Aliens. Thanks to all my guests this week, Dallas Campbell, Jim Alkalili and Neil deGrasse Tyson. The programme was produced by myself, Greg Jackson, and the theme tune was composed by Anthony Baggett. All of the music is by Duke Deck. Make your own at dukedeck.com. Next month, you and I are turning the lights down low in the search of darkness. So hit the dimmer switch and grab your night vision goggles and join me then. <laughs>